Thank you, choir. And uh, kudos to you, sopranos. That hurt my throat just <clears throat> imagining even the attempt of such a high note. Let's uh, open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we continue to glorify our King by hearing His Word as it comes to us in this portion of Scripture. 1 Timothy 3, our text is verses 14 to 16. It's on page 933 in your pew Bible. 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16. Christmas is right around the corner, just eight days away, and my guess is that many of you will be gathering with family and friends. Either you'll be going to visit them or they'll be coming to visit you. And when those kind of visits um, cannot take place, we might send a card or we might even enclose in the card um, a full-length letter. And that's the situation with Paul and Timothy. Paul is unable to get to Timothy. He wants to see him. Um, there's a chance that he might be able to make it, but in case he is delayed, he, he sends Timothy this important letter. And at the heart of this letter, in verses 14 to 16, Paul writes this, 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We're going to be taking a look at this passage today and next Sunday. It is so rich and so full. Here at the center of Paul's letter to Timothy is the heart of his message to Timothy. And it is the heart of God's message to us as it comes to us in this New Testament letter. Paul is the human author, but the Holy Spirit is the divine author. Timothy was the original recipient, but we are the present recipients. And so my prayer in preparing this message has been that each of us would be able to say, as Isaiah the prophet does in Isaiah 50, the sovereign Lord has spoken to me, and I have listened. I have not rebelled or turned away. It's my prayer that that would be the heart response of all of us. God in his kindness has brought us to this particular text at this particular time, Christmas time, as we celebrate the incarnation of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I believe that even the timing of our study of this particular text ought to elevate our interest because it extols the greatness of God incarnate. That's the title of today's message and next week's message, part one today, part two next week. Paul emphasizes the significance of the church in verses 14 and 15 and then immediately transitions into the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the one in whose name we are gathered, the one who we worship. As I said, we, we don't want to rush through this, so we're going to relish it today and next Sunday. So let's consider first the significance of the church. The significance of the church. Again, our passage is 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16. Please make sure that your, your eyes are focused on that text. Have you ever read 
a message maybe by you know email and or a letter you received from someone or maybe a memo or you, you heard a message on voicemail or someone was lecturing or teaching and and you wondered where is he going with this what's his point I, I hesitated to say that because I was wondering, maybe you're thinking that when I preach a lot of the times, but I trust that's not the case. But when it comes to this letter from Paul to Timothy, we don't have to hazard a guess as to what Paul's point is. We don't have to wonder where he is going with all these subjects he is talking about because Paul tells us explicitly here in verses 14 to 15. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul says some significant things here about the church, the collective company of God's people who are gathered for worship in Jesus' name in local assemblies all throughout the world. But it would be a mistake to go immediately to talking about the church without considering the significance of those who make up the church, the individuals, the believers who make up the church. I say that because Paul says to Timothy, I am writing these things to you. And the you is singular. And so there is something significant regarding Timothy and the people that he pastors. What Paul says here applies to Timothy individually, and not just to Timothy, but to every person, every believer in the congregation God has called him to shepherd. We know that because Paul wants Timothy to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, one being an individual person, how each person who belongs to the household of God, how each person should behave. Paul wants Timothy to know that so he can tell God's people that, so each one in the congregation can live up to his or her commitment in Christ. It's interesting when Paul tells Timothy, you know, I want you to know that word know is a form of the Greek word oida, which means to possess a knowledge or a skill for the purpose of achieving a goal. And that word behave appears in the present tense, so it speaks of a consistent pattern of life. That is to say that what Paul wants Timothy to know, he's not talking about just some sort of, um, you know, mental assent. He's not talking about, uh, you know, just a, 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 an intellectual knowledge. Uh, Paul is giving Timothy here very practical knowledge that is designed to help each believer in the church behave as is appropriate for those who claim the name of Jesus Christ. By this point, we know, if you've been with us, that Paul has already addressed some practical concerns in the church. The necessity of teaching proper doctrine in chapter 1. Uh, the respective responsibilities for men and women in chapter 2. Uh, for the need to appoint qualified spiritual leaders in the first part of chapter 3. And now at the very heart of his letter, at the very center of his letter, Paul emphasizes why these matters and the matters that he will address following in chapters 4 to 6, why these matters are so important. It's because of what the church is and because of what we confess. The church is significant because of what the Holy Spirit, through Paul the Apostle, says about the church of Christ. And here are a few things we can glean from this 
opening statement. First thing we can glean regarding the church's significance is that every believer is a member of God's household. To catch that, Paul said, I want you to know these things so that one would know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And it would be you know, very easy for us simply to talk about the household of God, but let's remember who makes up that household. The household is made up of everyone who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and has therefore been adopted as a son or daughter of God. That is an amazing concept of the Apostle John, who was an eyewitness of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, testified in the opening chapter of his gospel that when Jesus came, God incarnate came, his own people did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, to those who believed in him, God gave the right to become the children of God. And John the Apostle never lost the wonder of that reality when he's writing his first epistle. In chapter 3, he says, See what manner of love uh, the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I ask you, when is the last time that you considered that through faith in Jesus Christ, God has adopted you into his family? You are his son. You are his daughter. And he loves you more than any earthly father ever possibly could. Belonging to God's family is an awesome, tremendous privilege. And I don't know what kind of a family you come from. You may have come from a really good family. You may come from a broken or dysfunctional, horrible family. But you can belong to the very best of families, the family of God. And you can have a father who will never let you down who lavishes his love upon you, who loves you so much that he gave his one and only son for you. Belonging to God's family is a tremendous privilege, but it comes with key responsibilities. Ruthie and I, by the sheer grace of God, raised five children. And uh, at their earliest ages, they were taught to fulfill certain responsibilities. Ruthie was especially good at assigning specific age-appropriate tasks so that each child would learn to contribute to the well-being of the entire household. That if you're a member of this household, we, we love you, you belong, but being a member here means you have a responsibility to fulfill. It also means that there are certain rules to follow. That's a lot of times where I came in. And sometimes when there was a little pushback, I, I would keep just in my hip pocket. I try not to use it too often, but I would occasionally say, my house, my rules. Now that my kids are grown up and in their house and I'm over their place, I'll say, your house, your rules. Okay? But the church is God's house. And if we are members of God's family, which we are if we're believers in Christ, we have responsibilities to fulfill and we have rules that we are to follow. So here's the question. Would people know by your behavior that you belong to God's household? Would people know by your behavior, that is, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been adopted into God's family by faith in Christ. Would people know by your behavior that you are a member of God's household? Uh, to put it in, in more of a, a legal analogy, 
I've said on occasion that if you were arrested and tried for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Every believer is a member of God's household. Does our behavior reflect our belonging to that household? Number two, the church is the dwelling place of God. Paul says, Timothy, I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. That word church is the Greek word ekklesia, which means assembly. It literally means called out once. We have been called out from the world to God. In fact, the, the English word church comes from a Greek word kuriakis, which literally means belonging to the Lord. Of course, the word Lord is kurios, belonging to the Lord. So that's a great way to think of it. If I belong to a church that truly uh, preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I have embraced God's truth for myself, believing in him as my Lord and Savior, do I live, do I behave like I belong to the Lord, like I am a member of God's household? The church belongs to the Lord. It's the dwelling place of God. Five years before this letter was written in Paul's farewell speech to the elders at Ephesus, uh, we read about that in Acts 20. We've referred to that before. Paul said this in his speech to them, his exhortation. He said, care for the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. In his letter to the church at Ephesus, so that was his address to the elders. Then he actually wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. In that letter, he refers to the church as God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And later on in that same letter, Paul tells the church, in him, Christ, you are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So it would be proper to say the church is the house that God built. The church is the house that God built. John Calvin wrote, there are good reasons why God should call the church his house, not only because he has received us as his sons by the grace of adoption, but he himself dwells in the midst of us. Of us. It's not like God adopted us into his family and said, now here, you can stay in my household, and then he's never home. God dwells with his people. God is here today. He inhabits the praise of his people. Now, there's a popular worship song that begins with the words, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And I don't want to burst your bubble if you really like that song, but um, inviting the Holy Spirit to come where he's already um, here is illogical. In fact, it can kind of be disrespectful when you really think about it. Imagine if you were hosting a Christmas party in your home and you invited family and friends to come and someone came up to you as the host and, and they, they put their hand on your shoulder and smiled and said, you are welcome here. You'd probably smile right back and say, what do you mean? This is my house. Well, the church is God's house. It's the church of the living God. Now, we know that's true. That is true of God. In him is life, and the life was the light of men. He refers to him as the living God. But why would that be significant, especially to the Ephesian church? Let's remember, because looming over them there in the city of Ephesus was the massive, monumental temple to the Roman goddess 
Diana. This temple was absolutely amazing. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The first century Roman historian Pliny tells us that it was made entirely of marble. It was one of the largest Greek temples ever built. 377 feet long and 180 feet wide. So to put that in perspective, that would be about 20 feet larger per side than a football field. Entirely made of marble. So this was this this towering, monumental wonder of the world right in their city. And Paul is saying, look, I know it's impressive on the outside, but it's lifeless on the inside. Because the goddess sitting in that temple isn't a real god. That goddess is nothing more than a dead idol. But Timothy and the congregation he serves is the church of the living God. The the one and only God. And the same is true of every church that worships God in spirit and truth, regardless of what their building looks like or regardless if they even have a building. Paul told, when Paul was in the city of Athens in Acts 17, do you remember what he said? He said, the living God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. God dwells among his people especially when they are gathered in worship in Jesus' name. To put it in the vernacular, God is in the house. God is here today. Do you worship in light of God's empowering presence with his people today? The church is the dwelling place of the living God. Thirdly, the church is a pillar in support of the truth. This is another fascinating image that would have had a powerful effect upon the believers there in Ephesus because one of the most impressive features about the temple of Diana, that's the Roman goddess, the Greek equivalent was Artemis, there in Ephesus were its pillars, 127 pillars, 60 feet high supporting the fully marble roof of this all-marble temple. 60 feet high. So their purpose was clearly not just to make the temple stable, but to make the temple visible. This was a towering edifice. But today, the temple of Diana, the temple of Artemis, is in ruins, with just a few dilapidated pillars remaining and supporting nothing. But the church of Jesus Christ is still standing. And it's still expanding. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's because the true church, not just any organization that calls itself a church, But a true church, those who gather for worship in Jesus' name, in the Jesus as revealed by God's word, is the church of the living God, a pillar in support of the truth. Notice Paul says, 
a pillar in support of the truth, not the pillar in support of the truth. And the idea he's conveying is this, that every Christian congregation is a pillar that helps to bolster and uphold the truth of Jesus Christ before a watching world. And that's why we pray for other congregations besides our own virtually every Sunday morning. It's a recognition that as much as we love Webster Bible Church, we are not the sole uh, pillar in support of the truth. There are thousands, tens of thousands, congregations, perhaps hundreds of thousands, all over planet Earth that are preaching the same gospel that we preach here in Webster, New York. Temple of Diana had 127 pillars. We have thousands upon thousands of congregations that through their faithful teaching of God's word and faithfully living out God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit, they are upholding the word of God for all the world to see. And that's what makes the church significant. Every believer in the church is a member of God's household through faith in Christ. The church is the dwelling place of the living God and a pillar and buttress of the truth. Well, if a church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, it needs to know exactly what that truth is. And that's where Paul transitions from the significance of the church to the supremacy of Jesus Christ because he is the one that makes the church significant. And in verse 16, Paul summarizes the core of Christian doctrine. You'll notice that it all centers on Jesus Christ who said in John 14, 6, I am the truth. Let's look at this summary of Christian doctrine in 1 Timothy three sixteen. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I love Paul here. Here at the beginning of this confession, Paul issues another attack on the goddess Diana, the the, the Greek goddess Artemis. Because when when Paul, in his first visit to Ephesus, do you remember what happened? There in the book of Acts, Paul shows up at Ephesus and all the silversmiths hated him because they made all their living from making all these these, uh, shrines to the the goddesses of the Greeks, and especially with the Temple of Diana. And, and, And Paul goes saying, hey, they're just dead idols. Let me tell you about the living God, the true God. Uh, who has revealed himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so people were coming to the Lord and they were like, hey, I don't need to buy this stuff because I now belong to the one true God. So Paul was cutting into their business and they hated it. And so they got super angry and they began shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Or your translation might say, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they led this huge riot and they kept chanting that, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. For two hours they kept it up, and here Paul counterclaims, uh, Paul counters their claim and says, great is the mystery of godliness. And he talks about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Paul says, we confess. Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness, which means that this confession is not just that of Paul. It's of the entire church, of every believer. In fact, the word confess itself here is a form of the Greek word homologeo, which literally means to say the same thing. To say the same thing. To speak the same. 
And if you look at this confession, you'll notice that it's made up of six short clauses. And in the original language that has the same rhyme and the first word of each clause in all the clauses, all rhyme. And so this would have been very easy to memorize. It may have been a creed or even a song, a chorus, if you will, that was said as a confession, said or sung by the early church. The confession sums up the mystery of godliness. We came across that word mystery last week in 1 Timothy 3.9. Remember when Paul's giving qualifications for the leaders in the church and when it came to the deacons, Paul says in verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That is to say, uh, they must, they must uh, embrace, they must cling to the truth of God revealed in Scripture that, that we hold by faith. And that word mystery we noted at that point refers to divine truth that was once hidden but is now revealed. And all of that centers on Jesus Christ, God's plan of salvation in Christ. It's all about the good news concerning him. All the prophecies, all the, the uh, promises of the Old Testament point to him. It's all about Christ. He is the mystery of godliness. The word godliness appears nine times in this letter. And so you can make a good argument that it's really the, the, the theme of the letter. And that's why we've titled this entire sermon series. You probably see it every Sunday as I get up, that title slide, 1 Timothy, the value of godliness. But you cannot have godliness apart from Jesus Christ. Many people try to. They try to earn a righteousness that is their own. And, and Paul says, I used to do that. In Philippians uh, chapter 3, he says, you know, I, there was a time when I tried to earn my own righteousness, but when I came to know Christ, when I encountered Jesus Christ, when I saw who Jesus is and what he did for me, he said, I left those things behind. My self-righteousness, my self-sufficiency, my self-fulfillment. Paul said, I, I counted them as rubbish. I counted them as garbage. I left them behind that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. It's all about knowing Christ, the one who loves me and gave himself for me. He is the mystery of godliness. He is the very revelation of true and perfect godlikeness. Because Jesus is God incarnate. You want to know what it means to be godly? You must first know what it means to be godlike. <laughs> and no one was ever more godly than Jesus because he is literally God himself in the flesh. God incarnate. And that's the first line of the great confession concerning Christ. And what a beautiful thing it is to come to this phrase, particularly at Christmas time, even though it is just as important every day of the year. He was manifested in the flesh. Great is the mystery of godliness, uh, not a concept, a person. He was manifested in the flesh. The word manifested is a, is a form of the Greek word phanerao, which means to make visible. It doesn't mean to bring into existence. It means to make visible. And Scripture clearly teaches that the Son of God, God the Son, pre-existed eternally with the other two persons of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. 
And then I recently referred to this, the opening statements in the Gospel of John, who was an eyewitness of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, said, this is how he starts his, 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 uh, his Gospel, in the beginning was the Word. That is to say, the Word already existed in the beginning when time as we know it began, at the moment of creation. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. How much more clear can John be? John goes on to say, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And John goes on to say down in verse 14, this incredible statement, the mystery of godliness. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John said, I've seen his glory. I have fellowship with him, and I want you to have fellowship with us. And the way that we can have fellowship with one another is if you trust in him. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, come to know Christ. Question is, why does John call Jesus the word? The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. The Word became flesh. Well, if you look up in a dictionary, even today, you'll see that one of the key definitions for the word word is an expression, an utterance. That's even true of the the Greek word for word, logos. The human Jesus is the visible expression of, of eternal God. The author of Hebrews says that he is the radiance of the Father's glory, God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature. He is not just like God, he is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. The famous 18th century evangelist George Whitfield proclaimed, Jesus was God and man in one person that God and man might be happy together again. Because our sins had separated us from God. And the holy God cannot tolerate sin. But the love of God wants to rescue sinners. So God sent his son into this world, to redeem and rescue lost humanity. Paul says in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us why it was necessary for the Son of God to take on flesh and become a human being. He says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Hebrews 2.14. And here's the point we need to consider. Everything Jesus did on earth, he did in a real human body flesh and blood. Never once gave up his deity. Never once stopped being God. But to his divinity, he added the mystery of humanity. 
Everything he did on earth, he did in a real human body, just like ours. Peter, another eyewitness, probably no one closer to Christ, obnoxiously so at times, <laughs> a witness of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, testified these simple words. Christ suffered in the flesh. Christ suffered in the flesh. Isaiah foretold of the Savior's suffering by speaking in the first person in Isaiah 50, verse 6. I came across this just this morning. He says, I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. The Son of God went through that for me and you. Phil Riken helps to move us from an abstract consideration of Jesus' incarnation to its concrete realities by just spending a moment on this point. He says, and I quote, The events of the passion of Jesus Christ were physical events. His cheek was kissed by his betrayer. His face was spit upon. His body was struck and slapped. His back was flogged. His brow was pierced by thorns. His head was struck with a staff. It was a real body that was nailed with real nails to a real cross of real wood. It was a real body that was punished for sin. Peter says he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And then it was a real body, a corpse, that was taken down from the cross, wrapped in linen, and laid in a tomb. God the Son did not just appear in a body. The body in which he appeared was crucified, dead, and buried. And he did that for us. Great is the mystery of godliness. And it's great not only because Jesus suffered and died and was buried for us, but because the body of God's Son did not stay in the grave. Amen. Next line. He was manifested in the flesh, and he was what? Vindicated by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit proved that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God and the Savior of the world, by raising him from the dead. Romans 1, 4. We'll talk more about that next week. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit in multiple other ways during his earthly ministry, but the resurrection was the ultimate vindication. It was the Holy Spirit's verification that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the long-awaited Son of God. Jesus is the Savior for all who believe. Were you listening to the song that was sung moments ago? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. The only appropriate response to this great mystery of godliness, this God-likeness, God in the flesh, the incarnate God, is to believe in Jesus 
and become like Jesus. First of all, believe in Jesus as the God-man, the one great mediator between God and man who died and rose for you so that you could be forgiven of your sins, be reconciled to God, and possess the gift of eternal life. Believe in Jesus. He is the only way of salvation. He said, I am the way, not a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And just so there's no question about it, no one comes to the Father except through me. So believe in Jesus for the sake of your eternal soul. Then once you do that, become like Jesus. Become like Jesus Follow his supreme example with the help of the Holy Spirit. Peter tells you, tells us that Christ not only suffered for us so that we could be saved by his power, but he also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. That if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. So become like Jesus. Follow his supreme example by glorifying God in your body. Paul talks about that in his note, in his letter to the Corinthians. Do you not know, uh, not only that the church corporately is the temple of God, but your body individually is the temple of God. And in that context, Paul was talking about sexual sin that was going on. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you? That you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So in total reliance on the Holy Spirit, use your ears to hear God's word. Use your feet to go, your hands to help, your lips to bless, your mind to serve. Because that is the power of Christ in you. Let's pray. Lord, we're not even fully past the first line of this great confession, but how our hearts have already been warmed and comforted and encouraged and charged up by the wonder of who you are. Lord, I pray that as we um, conclude this morning service that uh, we would be undertaking that twofold response, making sure first and foremost that we have believed in you as our Lord and Savior not just believe in someone else's concept of who you are, but believe who you are by the word of God's own testimony as recorded in Scripture. You tell us, Lord, in the book of Hebrews, that without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Lord, I pray that nobody would leave this room today without having put their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of sins and the free gift of eternal life. Lord, I pray that we would respond to such a great salvation by giving ourselves as a living sacrifice to the one who gave him His life as a sacrifice for us. We recall Paul's words in, in Romans 12 where he tells us to present our bodies. He urges us, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service. 
It's our spiritual act of worship. And in light of all that Christ has done for us, how can we not do this for him? To withhold such a sacrifice would perhaps be indicative that we've never really known the true sacrifice who gave himself for us. How I pray, O oh God, that our behavior would reflect our belief. That in those moments of temptation, when we're attempted to sin against you with our body sexually, abuse our body for some other means, or to extort or use someone else's body for our pleasure, Father, I pray that we would remember the one in whom we have believed. That we would remember whose household we belong to. Help us to live as members of your household, the church of the living God, a pillar and support of the truth. We thank you, Father, that this is possible because you have given us not only your Son, but you and the Son both have given us your Holy Spirit, which is Christ in us, the Spirit of Christ, the hope of glory. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are strengthened with all might according to your glorious power so that we can run the race that you have set before us. What a great and thrilling adventure this is as we take our next steps in life. Help us to walk worthy of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.